Hi, everyone. I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Luke Holloway, field application scientist at Wyatt Technology, who recently joined us for a webinar reviewing light scattering-based methods for protein characterization and explaining their utility when combined with partially denaturing buffers in understanding the aggregation propensity of monoclonal antibodies. Let's get right into it. first question here, what concentration range do you recommend for measuring protein-protein interaction and over how many individual concentrations? I would say you would initially want to go with a kind of wide concentration range, so anywhere between 1 to 20 mg per mil, and you want to have at least, I would say, eight different measurements. Again, you would probably do some replicates for some of those. You might see some non-linear effects at the really low protein concentration and you might see non-linear effects that say between 15 to 20 mg per mil so it's, it's good to have a, a wide range initially to make those interaction measurements. Fantastic great answer. Next one here is KD as reliable as A2 for assessing protein-protein interactions? Yes, I would say I would say so. Clearly, A2 has been kind of the go-to measurement when it comes to protein-protein interactions, and KD has obviously had a lot more going for it because of the high throughput of DLS. But KD is obviously very susceptible to these um, density fluctuations, and at least with my um, the chapter one kind of demonstrated how how much influence these can have. So you just do have to be careful and make sure you make the corrections where necessary. And it's always it is always good to make an A2 KD comparison for every for a couple of samples every so often just to make sure you are making the correct measurements and you are on the right line. All right, great answer. All right, thank you for your fantastic presentation. Which equipment did you use to perform ICD to calculate delta G? That was a uh, unchained uh, hunk uh, instrument. Okay, how, how can I tell if I need to make manual measurements of DN over DC or if the standard value of not 0.185 mils per g is sufficient to calculate the molecular weight and A2 measurements? So the DNDC of standard protein has always been estimated to be about 0.185 mil per gram. But this really is a kind of average value. And generally speaking, the, the value can range from 0.181 to 0.188. But there are two factors really you need to consider. So one is your analytes and the other is the solvent itself. The DNDC, if you, you imagine, of the individual amino acids actually range from 0.165 about 0.27. So as long as the protein is sufficiently large, so let's say an antibody or let's say BSA in terms of size and above, then 0.185 with most common solvents should suffice. But once you get to smaller proteins and peptides, then you can expect this will differ significantly from the average value just because a few amino acids can, can, can skew your results. But where then your solvent's concerned, a good rule of thumb in a way is if your absolute uh, refractive index of the solvent is greater than 1% different to that of water, so let's say 1.333, and I would then still advise measuring the DNDC experimentally. You can always check the absolute refractive index of your solvent by using an OpsLab. So if you just simply have the purge valve open, you can eject about two to three mils of your solvent through and you can, and then you can check the ARI in that case. Fantastic. All right, next question here. Is it safe to use a SecMALS system and column with denaturant in the mobile phase? So that was obviously a concern when I 
did this PhD project, but in the end, you just kind of have to go with it. My own learnings is, yes, it's perfectly safe. Once you go to high concentrations of whether it's urea or guanidinium, you do have to be mindful initially of the increase of viscosity. And so you have to slow down the flow rate, maybe a touch. And then generally after running the experiments, you just need to run through copious amounts of fresh water to remove all the, all the salts. And things like the purge frit or inline filter, you probably have to change it a little bit more often. So instead of changing those every three months, you might change it every couple of weeks or so. I would say it's also wise to try and keep the, the needle clean. So make sure you have kind of a, a needle wash. So inject a few uh, samples of waters, water at the end of your run. And I'll say it's always good practice anyway to back flush your set column every so often because it always increases its longevity. Perfect. Some great insights there. All right. Another question here. Can you measure protein-protein interactions at high protein concentrations, for example, between 50 and 100 milligrams per mil? Yes, you can uh, make those measurements. Generally speaking, you're going to put do these on the Dynapro Nanostar because it has uh, laser and power and attenuation settings that will adjust for your concentration of your sample. But there are other kind of factors you kind of have to take into consideration. So you're not simply just measuring A2 or KD in uh, those kind of concentrations. A2 and KD are really aimed at dilute under the dilute regime. So KD is definitely a dilute regime. A2, you can still make uh, high concentration measurements. The other factors to take into consideration is, is initially like hydrodynamic forces. So particularly where DLS is concerned, and these hydrodynamic forces just means the, the crowding effect basically inhibits the diffusion of your protein samples and solutions. So you're no longer measuring free diffusion. Everything's getting in each other's way. And so you're not really measuring a protein interaction anymore under those circumstances. And when it comes to SLS, there are other factors, again, that come into play. So you can measure something called the structure factor, and there's also something called the Kirkwood buff integral. That's obviously beyond the scope of what the white instruments can do. But if you are going to make those measurements, those are the other factors you have to take into consideration than just A2 alone. Fantastic. Great answer there. All right, here's the next question. So the unfolded and aggregated forms uh, appear soluble, but how might you analyze insoluble forms? That's That's a good question. So if your if your protein's insoluble, generally speaking, once you use denaturants, you should be able to solubilize your protein because you know, the the denaturant will bind essentially to the, the surface of the protein and then it will penetrate the, the hydrophobic core. So eventually, if you go to high denaturant concentrations, your protein should become soluble and then thus be be measurable. Obviously, in my my PhD project, uh, everything was soluble to a degree. It just depends on how much denaturant that you use. Don't know if there's any kind of follow-up to that in, in retrospect. Perfect. Excellent. So follow up by the same uh, person who asked that question. So what is the source of nonlinear measurements at low and high concentrations? Okay. So at low concentrations, it generally the nonlinear effects are usually, usually happen at uh, really low ionic strength solutions. And that's kind of a little bit of an artifact. If it was a, if you have sufficient ionic strength, you won't get nonlinear effects at low protein concentrations. But if you have kind of really low ionic strengths, you can you can get it below, let's say, around one mg per mil. 
the kind of medium kind of concentration rate, let's say between 15, 20 mg per mil, that you basically get other interactions that uh, occur. So, for example, when we say A2 or B22, we're actually saying the interaction between component two and component two, so a protein body and a protein body. But you can get other interactions. So you could have a B23 kind of interaction. So there might be a slight interaction, let's say the preferential interaction, there's an interaction between your protein and your co-solvent, which is another factor that will, will kind of come into as well. And you can get interactions between the solvent and the solvent. That will affect your, your light scattering signals. Fantastic. All right, next question here. What is the sample volume required when using the Calypso instrument? Once you've got the Calypso uh, fully primed, so essentially your syringes need to be primed. It has to go through your, your inline filter and through through the static mixer. Beyond that, you need about basically 600 to 800 microliters uh, per injection. That just ensures you can saturate your mouse detector with your, with your sample, which is obviously a mixture of protein and buffer. There are various syringe sizes available, so you can have 0.25, 0.5 or 1 mil syringes. There is a degasser, but you can obviously bypass that. And additionally, if you're confident that you filtered, like say, for example, in my circumstance, if you filter your, your stock solution beforehand, you could probably also bypass the inline filters as well if you wanted to save a bit of volume there as well. Fantastic. Great answer. Next question here, in uh, in classical batch measurements, one measurement DN over DC using dialysis equilibrium, uh, but performs the batch ZIM style measurements on samples not subjected to dialysis equilibrium. So what's the right procedure for SECMALs? Generally, so the, the one I did that's obviously um, equal chemical potential is really to uh, for samples where I had high co-solvent conditions. And so I have to make those corrections. And it was, it's really quite obvious, the protein molecular weight, infinite protein dilution, that there's a, a significant effect. In the sucrose example that I gave, um, the effect on sucrose in terms of the B22A2 is relatively small. It did flip-flop the, the interaction relationship between sucrose concentration and A2 value, but it is relatively minor. Generally, obviously, it's, it's much easier to just simply have your stock solution of co-solvent, your buffer, and your protein, and just pipette and mix them all together. And generally speaking, you're still going to get pretty good data when it comes to A2 measurements. But if you're obviously want to be strictly speaking, you want to, let's say, publish your A2 data, I would still say if you're using moderate to high co-solvent condition, I would still say do the dialysis experiment if at all possible. Fantastic. All right, next question here. How can you extend this study for virus characterization? So A2, KT, gamma 23, tag. Any comments about that? That's a good question. I don't think I have a particular answer for it at this moment. I could probably give it a little bit more thought, and I think we can probably answer that question after the presentation, but I'll certainly give it a little bit of thought in that case. Definitely sounds great. Okay, next question here. Do you have any idea about the measurement of PR-PR interaction between protein fibrils and incoming monomer? Myself, no, I haven't had any experience of making those kind of measurements. If I expect that the protein fibrils are quite significantly different to that of the monomer, you could potentially treat it as a, a, a separate component. So in this case, you could make a measurement of, say, say B23. If you had a, a solution of, of your fibril and you had a solution of your monomer, you could do, say, a cross-reaction uh, interaction study. That's actually something else the, the Calypso software can do, but you have to obviously have sufficient concentration of fibrils to, in order to do that. 
Potentially, you could also do that on a Nanostar and export that kind of data over to the Calypso. But if, you, if that's something you really want to measure, I'd say raise a, a basically a help desk request and we can point you in the right direction if possible. Fantastic. All right, next question here. Why does arginine HCL appear to be excluded from the protein? So in this particular case, the arginine value I tested was actually 0.25 molar. And at that concentration with lysine, it was, it was excluded about the process, which was a bit unusual. But there's something we I've known, we've, we've kind of measured even throughout my other experiments that I've done and didn't actually show, is that arginine, the effect of arginine is really protein dependent. So some, some proteins, it will really bind onto the protein surface and have a, an effect, and sometimes it's slightly excluded. And the other thing with, with arginine is that it also has a concentration effect. So different levels, let's say 0 0.1, 0.25, 0 0.5, 1 molar, the effect, the, the volume exclusion or attraction actually changes as a function of concentration. So typically, for example, for, uh, say, a protein refolding experiment, uh, you would actually use about 0.5 molar arginine hydrochloride. And that's why it's really beneficial for those kind of experiments, because at that level, it does actually slightly, actually preferentially bind to the protein as opposed to be excluded. So, yeah, arginine is a really quite interesting excipient, and it really depends on the protein and the concentration used. Fantastic. Great answer. All right. Where do you see incorporating the use of denaturants for stability assessment during formulation development? In this particular study, I've obviously used it to compare different molecules. So this could obviously be then in kind of almost pre-formulation stages. So where you want to quickly assess can different candidate uh, kind of molecules saying which ones are really prone to aggregation, which ones are less prone to aggregation in a much quicker, quite quicker time frame. For formulation studies in particular, so if you had a certain candidate and you're just trying to figure out which formulation to use, I think that is possible. But it's in this case, I think you probably might need to use something like urea, which is kind of neutral. So it doesn't contribute ionic strength because obviously ionic strength is obviously quite an important kind of factor when you, you're doing formulation type of experiments. But yeah, I would say initially, if you're trying to compare different candidates, quickly, quick to kill kind of experiments say, this molecule is definitely not going to be stable for very long. And I can put that back to the drawing board or this molecule. Yeah, it looks pretty stable. Let's take it down to down a formulation kind of stability route. Excellent. So uh, the topic, obviously, today, we mainly dealt with using chemical denaturants. But do you think you could predict aggregation rate in the absence of a denaturant? And what do you think uh, your next steps would be? At the present, I would say it's, it's, it's going to be quite difficult. Obviously, during the study, we have this problem where we need to subtract out the effect of the, of the denaturant itself. So obviously, as you increase um, denaturant concentration, you increase the relative kind of population of the unfolded states. You get increase in, uh, in aggregation rates. But then if you increase denaturant further, you get actually these forces, the attractive forces between the states actually attenuated. So you're getting the opposite effect. In my particular study, I only really looked at quite large increments. So I went from 0 to 0.5 to 1 to 1.5, 2 molar. And I think if you wanted to really examine the relationship and to be able to subtract out the effect of nature, you probably have to just really focus in on, on one protein and just measure these interactions in much smaller increments. So 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.5, up to, up to maybe about 2 molar, I would say just with one protein and then again do that with different at different temperatures so in a lot of cases i was doing this at 40 degrees c we could measure
measure these kind of effects over just 12 hours. But I think there's there's room to maybe say still use the same denaturant concentration, but let's say let's do it 25 degrees C and maybe you can monitor over, let's say, one week. That still, I say, is ben- more beneficial than obviously just doing it at room temperature also over a period of month it's still you know quarter of the time Uh, so that's probably the next step i would probably take fantastic all right next question here can you explain once more how the sls measurement at different guanidine hcl concentrations can tell you if the molecule would aggregate from the native or unfolded state yes so on the interaction study that i did obviously on on the plate reader so those circumstances are just simply measuring at 20, 20 grams per litre, just one simple quick measurement. And what I'm looking for is whether the interaction is positive or, or attract, uh, is it repulsive or attractive. But then I am doing that plot at the same time as comparing to the, the unfolding curve, so the, the delta G kind of experiments. So if you find you have attractive interactions that occur Generally speaking, for certain antibodies, so antibody 2, it kind of coincided with the midpoint of unfolding. So antibody 2, big increase in attractive interactions occurred when you reach 50% of your population is in the unfolded state. So you expect the maximum amount of attraction. So you could clearly see that in those circumstances that it's kind of aggregating from the unfolded state. But if you find that the attractive interactions actually occur well before the midpoint of unfolding, I think it was antibody four. So uh, you would say actually predominantly your 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 formulation is still in the native state, and so attractive interactions are really coming from the the native state. So it's really a comparison of your measure of your interaction versus a a denaturant uh, kind of unfolding curve. Excellent. Nice question here. Are there any ways to improve the standard models for the relationship between temperature and degradation rate? Yeah, I say I say there are big uh, opportunities to improve there. So the standard way of doing these kind of experiments at the moment is just you test it at 40 degrees C and you try and extrapolate back to intense storage conditions. People obviously still test at 5 and 25 degrees C, but even then you've still got only three data points. So as I kind of showed initially on the first couple of slides, you just simply need more data points. The more data points you have, the easier it is to relate degradation rate to to temperature. But the big the big question mark is how long do you have to wait before you you can obviously predict and see this trend? And so that's why we obviously went down the denaturant route. But yeah, this the standard model can be improved. They just need more opportunity to to get more data points at, at more different temperatures if possible. Fantastic. All right, here's one. What factors do you think make the difference in stability of monoclonal antibodies? So I'd say primarily the main factor is structural stability. So if your antibody is going to unfold or form the unfolded or partially unfolded states at lower temperatures, at any given moment, 25 degrees or 5 degrees C, you're going to have a higher population. And if you imagine if, if one protein molecule starts to unfold, you can imagine the, the adjacent protein is then also encouraged to unfold. And so you can you can get aggregation. But again, it also depends on what kind of concentration you're intending to formulate at. So if you're looking at formulated at 100 mg per mil plus, um, structural stability is obviously the, the biggest thing. If you're below that, then... Cl- if you're going to look at 50 mg per, low, mg per mil or lower, then colloidal stability then also still becomes really important. So if your protein molecules are repelled from one another, they are going to, they're also going to be much less likely to, to aggregate. But 
as I kind of alluded to with the uh, potential amine force, you can have repulsive electrostatic interactions. But if you're formulating at 120 mg per mil or 100 mg per mil, the short range forces are going to dominate under those kind of circumstances because the proteins are simply too close together. So if you ever have any hydrophobia interactions, it's, it's kind of a big no-go in those kind of circumstances. Fantastic. I think in the interest of time, we'll make this next question the last one. But what do you think preferential interactions tell you about the effect of excipients on the stability of the protein? So in general, excipients that are preferentially bound um, to the protein surface really cause the counter effect of excluding water molecules from around the protein surface. So as you imagine for, let's say, standard protein, so excluding membrane proteins in this case, the protein structure is really determined by this protein hydrophobic core, which is all kind of driven by the water molecules around the protein. So if you ex- exclude water molecules from around the protein surface, it kind of st- destabilizes the protein structure. So that's why when you denaturins kind of bind onto your protein it destabilizes it allows the the kind of protein to uh, to fold unfold but vice versa if excipients are then preferentially excluded from the, the surface of the protein this actually increases the concentration of water molecules around the protein and thus should increase protein structural stability We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.